Good morning. Uh, just a report. We remember last week we prayed for uh, Margaret who had uh, went to surgery this week, and her surgery went very well, and she's home recovering now. So no complications and things went very well. So we're thankful for that. For those of you who haven't noticed, Dean made a Facebook fan page for Common Reason Sabbath School class. I know one or two of you have seen it, and uh, this is just another opportunity to share and witness. We actually had a request where one of the churches I was doing a a seminar, somebody came up and asked if we would make a fan page so that they could share it with their friends. And uh, so if you guys want, you can go to Facebook, if you have a Facebook account, and and become a fan of Come and Reason. And and then when announcements come out, the blog goes up, and the new things come out, it will automatically send you an email with a link to where you can find the the material. uh, Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and study. We thank you for the truth you revealed in your word and your spirit who helped enlighten and and lead us into all truth. We pray that you will join us this morning with your angels and your spirit, that we might uh, know you today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly today. In the lesson title in our quarterly, People on the Move, the Book of Numbers, is the Second Generation Admonitions. Look at Sabbath's lesson, and in the middle of the lesson... In the first paragraph, it states, In spite of divine judgment on the nation in which the first generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, perished, God had multiplied them abundantly, and the armies of Israel mustered in the plain of Moab were for all practical purposes as large as those of the first generation. My question is, what did we learn already in this quarter regarding the assumption stated that only Joshua and Caleb from the first generation entered the promised land? This is, this is kind of like a test, because we already went over this earlier in the quarter, and I just want to see how much retention we're getting. And the Levites entered Yeah, remember, exactly. He said the Levites. And let's just go over that very briefly. Um, what we learned this quarter is Joshua and Caleb were not the only men over the age of 20 from that first generation who entered the Promised Land. It says in Numbers... 147 through 50. It says, The families of the tribe of Levi, however, were not counted among the others. The Lord said to Moses, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle and the testimony over all the furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all the furnishings and so forth. And then, Notice the Levites weren't counted in the census. And then in Numbers 14, 29, and 30, it says, In the desert your bodies were fall. Every one of you, 20 years or more, who was counted in the census and who, was, and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter on the land I swore to uplift, so forth and so on, except Caleb and Joshua. The Levites weren't counted in the census. Now, we might say, well, that's kind of, you know, circumstantial evidence. What, what other direct evidence do we have? Well, we have the direct evidence of, uh, oh, and first off, the other thing is that the, uh, uh, it says, in all the men of 20 years or more, were able to serve in the army were listed all the tribes except Levi. That's Numbers 1, 20, and then verse, uh, Numbers 1, ver- verse 47. So Levi, again, wasn't counted as those in the army. In fact, the Levites were counted from birth, not from age 20 in the census. So, the death sentence was pronounced upon the children of Israel to die in the wilderness, all that were 20 years and older. So direct evidence? Well, Eliezer, who was the son of Aaron... Aaron, you remember, was 83 years of age when, uh, 83 or so when Moses was 80 and took the children of Israel out of Egypt when they started their sojourn. So Eliezer was, uh, already had a son, Phineas, and Eliezer became the high priest and went into the promised land. So he was over the age of 20, but yet he didn't die in the wilderness. He went on in. 
So did Phineas, his son, who was over the age and went in. So we have two by name that went in. So it's not just circumstantial. We have direct evidence of people besides um, Caleb and Joshua. What's the point? Why does it matter? What's the, what's the lesson? Remember, when we look at the Old Testament Israel, the whole system, and this is what we're going to look at again today as we look at the next generation and what they did, the whole system is an object lesson to teach us God's plan of salvation. And so what's being taught? In the system, who represented those who were Christian, if you will, those who have accepted Christ, those who are God's followers? In the system of the 12 tribes, which ones represented the priests of God? The Levites. Okay? Notice the Levites were not counted amongst the warriors that went in, and they were not ones who rebelled. And if you remember, why did the rebellion occur? The report came back from the ten spies. What did the report say? A discouraging report. They're giants over there. We can't defeat them. In other words, a report against the will of God, except for Caleb and Joshua. Notice that the tribes, other than Levi, believe the false report. They get discouraged. What this teaching us is, and so they don't enter the promised land, the people who are not centered in Christ, those who are not the priesthood of Jesus Christ, they believe the lies of Satan. They become discouraged. They uh, pull back and don't follow where the master tells us to go, and thus they don't enter the eternal promised land. Whereas the priests, those who know Christ, they're not discouraged by the threats and lies and distortions of the, of the roaring lions who made the devour. And, and ultimately we end up in the, in the eternal promised land. So I think there's an object lesson there for us in this process as well. So, it, so it's a teaching tool for us. And that was just kind of a way of review, something we already studied earlier in the, in the quarter. Some, uh, Numbers 27, 1 through 11, describes the daughters of Zolethahad, a descendant of Manasseh, son of Joseph, who petitioned for a portion of the land since their father had no sons. The word from God was that they were right. And so according to the Lord, what were they right about? And in verse 4, this is what they said. Why should our father's name disappear from the clan because he has no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. And the Lord said to Moses that they were right. Now, the question for you guys, what do you think about the inheritance of land and how they handled it? Any thoughts about that? Is it important? Is it just trivia? Why is the land so important? Is the land still important to the Israelites today, the Jewish people? Yeah, why is the land so important? In God's economy, is the land of Palestine really what's important? No. Yeah, but it seemed to have a place here, but it's not important. Hmm. Is the Old Testament sanctuary, or is the land part of the whole system, a teaching tool just like the sanctuary was? And so the, the way they divvied up the land, all the rules that they got through Leviticus and Numbers, were part of that entire economy, which is designed by God to teach us something. Or is the land really important? The actual physical dirt in that part of the world, is it important? What does Jesus say? John 4, the woman at the well is speaking with Jesus. Anybody remember the story? And of course, he eventually says, uh, you're right, uh, the man you're with is not your husband. You've been with so many others, and go, go get the man you're with and come back. She gets a little uncomfortable with that, and what does she say to him? Anybody remember? 
She tries to divert the question. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Which is it? So, does, she's asking, is there a physical special place? Does the land matter? Does it matter where we worship? What did Jesus say? What space is more spiritual? What place is more holy? Is there a land that's the best? Should we travel and sojourn to a particular place on this planet Earth in order to have the best worship experience with God? I said neither. Yes, exactly. This is what he said. So you see, he says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. What is he teaching about the land? Is this about the land, about the place, the physical location where he worship? Is he talking about that? Is he talking about whether it's important or not? Yeah, he's not teaching us we need to go to a place. He's teaching us it doesn't matter which place, doesn't it? My, I paraphrased it. My paraphrase goes like this. Shocked and somewhat uncomfortable with such a personal revelation, the woman said, Sir, to know such things you must certainly be a prophet, so please help me with the problem. Our people have always worshipped here on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Which is it? Jesus declared, Believe me, dear woman, the place one worships God is not important, but the condition of the heart of the worshiper is what matters. Very soon you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship a confusing tradition of rituals that don't enlighten the mind and has no ability to heal the worshiper. We worship the Creator God and our minds are enlightened and healed by Him because all He asks of us is sensible and reasonable. The plan to heal humanity from the infection of selfishness to sin is provided through the Jews. The time has now come that all true worshipers will worship the Father with an intelligent, reasonable understanding of who He is, loving, admiring, and respecting the truth about His nature, character, and methods. These understanding worshipers are the kind the Father seeks. God is intelligent and reasonable, and His worshipers must worship Him intelligently and reasonably, appreciating and valuing, valuing the truth of God's methods and principles. What do you think? Do you think that's what the text is meaning that Christ is trying to say? That he wants, God wants people to actually know him, understand him, appreciate and value him, be intelligent about it? Or does he want minds that are darkened and superstitious? He wants to enlighten people who can see. Because superstition is basically a shroud. And it doesn't allow light in. It, it doesn't allow reason in. And it just darkens the flame of curiosity. Because if you know something bad will happen, it doesn't have to be reasonable. Can, can we grow in character if we don't reason and think with God? What does he say in Isaiah? The name of this class is based on Isaiah 1, 18-20. Come, let us reason together. Notice the connection. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white like snow. Okay? It is the connection. It's the reasoning out with God that transforms us. Can God impose by his divine might transformation of character upon somebody? Can he impose it? Can he... And now you're changed. Well, he could, sure. But he doesn't. Could he and they still be a free will person? No, they become a robot. Yes. 
So he would destroy the individual and create a new entity in its place. Yeah. And that would be, of course, a different kind of being than who God really has been revealed himself in Christ to be. So as we look through this, then what do we make of this teaching of the land? Why was it given, what was it given to teach during this Old Testament sanctuary time period, this object lesson of the people of Israel, they divvied up the land, what are we to learn from this? Well, who did the various tribes represent? Did the tribes that inherited the land represent the saved followers of Christ? Some saying yes. Who represented in the system the, the followers of Christ, the priesthood of believers? The Levites. Did they actually inherit any land? No, the Levites got no land. The priesthood of believers. In fact, it says, if I read a couple of paragraphs, this is out of Deuteronomy 10.9. Um, that is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord God told them. In Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. So notice that the, the Levites, who represent the priesthood of believers, all of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, they didn't get any land. All the other tribes got land. What do you think this means? What are we to learn from this? This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Good one. The reason that the women said they wanted to have land. What was the reason given in Numbers? That they went to Moses and said, Give us land so our... Legacy will not die. Legacy will not die. Or Father's name be remembered. Father's name will be remembered. Does that bring any, does, is your computer going off and saying, oh yeah, I remember a story in scripture back in Genesis in which somebody built a city to make a name for himself. Anybody, had that like, pop off in your mind? Nimrod. Nimrod, in what city? Babel. Make a name for ourselves. Hmm. We want a land so we can have our name remembered. But the Levites don't get, name, don't get a land. Does that mean the Levites don't have their name remembered? Whose name, what does name represent in Jewish history or Jewish symbolism? Character. Character. Whose name do you think the priesthood of believers wants remembered? It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's not me you should remember. It's my Savior that you should see in me. So the priests get no land. Their names don't get remembered. What gets remembered is the Holy One that they serve, the name of God. That's good. But these other tribes, they want land, possession, and they want their names remembered. Now, why is this? Why is this? I suggest that the symbol is teaching. If you understand the whole ministration of what the what the priests and Levites were doing, they were ministering constantly to the rest of the tribes. What does that symbolize? What are we Christians supposed to be doing? Jesus said, "Paul is a chosen vessel, a vessel to do what." to carry the truth to the Gentile world. In the Old Testament system, the priest would carry in a vessel the blood around the system. The blood represents the truth, the life of Christ. We are to carry that life in our hearts, in our demeanor, in our actions, in our words. We are to be representatives to carry that to the world. Are there a different value system? What do people who value the world's methods strive for in this world? What are they working to get? Possessions? Status. Status. So name recognition and land. Land was like the most valuable thing they could get. 
Today we might say money as well. But the Levites, they're not pursuing that. They have a different value system. They're pursuing the ministry to those whose hearts are tied to the land to bring them to conversion, to bring them to Christ. I think this is a powerful lesson for us. Interestingly enough, there was also another principle God was trying to teach. Does anybody remember how property rights were handled in Israel? Once the land was divvied up and they possessed the land, and you got your share within your family, how did property rights go, go on from that point forward? Son to son. Son to son. How about if you wanted to sell your property? Could you? Only for a period of time. You see, there was no, you could not actually sell away permanently your property. You could basically, what we would call today, lease your property. You could lease it up to 49 years. At 49 years, the year of Jubilee, all property went back to the original owners. Now, what do you think this lesson is trying to teach? What is the principle behind this lesson? Remember, these are the people who are pursuing gain and and, and self-advancement. And God put in a structure that allows for easy acquisition of wealth and property or a structure that limits the acquisition of wealth and property. Why? To minimize excess wealth and to minimize excess poverty. To minimize excess wealth and to minimize excess poverty. This is a model for how we could avoid so much of the disparities of the super rich and the super poor. Even amongst those who are non-believers, if they would put in systems like this, I think God was trying to teach something. It's pretty powerful lessons if we stop and look. Yes? You mentioned about the land, and my mind went to the, to the people that will inherit the earth. Will if I understand it correct, the 144,000 that the Bible talks about will follow the Lamb so everywhere it goes. That's right. And so the 140, so, so the people, the tribes, represent every nation, kindred, tribe, and people who through the ministration of Christ's followers are brought into salvation at the end, the, the 144,000 symbolic. But what my point is, there's also a great multitude that the Bible talks about too. Right. Right, from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people. It's all speculative. No one knows for sure. My personal view is the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. If you read it, it says, um, an angel came from the east saying, from the Lord, saying to the angels holding the four winds of strife, who would be given power to harm the earth, uh, hold, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And then it numbers the servants, 144,000 from each tribe, except the tribe of Dan. If you remember, Dan is gone. Two tribes of Manasseh, I mean, two tribes of Joseph are there instead. So Dan is not included. So this is not actually genetic descendants of Israel that it's representing here. It's a symbolic representation of those who are sealed in their forehead, the servants of God. If you actually look in other places in Revelation and through the Old Testament, the servants of God are, are the prophets of God. In my personal view is that this is a prophecy in the end of time about a group of people represented symbolically by the 144,000 who have been so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, with a great controversy perspective, understanding the origins of sin in heaven, 
understanding the purpose of creation on earth, the fall of mankind, God's treatment in the Old Testament, the purpose of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, his ministry in heaven, and ultimately the consummation to come, who have this enlightened vision, are sealed and cannot be shaken from it. Then the four winds loosen. And when the four winds loosen, things begin to happen. And why? Because with the loosening of the four winds and troubles on earth, people are shaken out of their complacency. They're shaken out of the, the, wind, the, the little rat race of life where they never actually think about eternal consequences. They start asking questions. What's happening to this world? What's the, what was there a hereafter? And the 144,000 have already been prepared and sealed to be God's worldwide witnesses to, to, to present the truth. And from their witness and the work of the Holy Spirit, the great multitude is ultimately saved in the end. That's my view of it. All right, Monday's lesson. Somebody read that paragraph for us at the top, after so many years. After so many years in the wilderness, the children into the promised land. A new generation had arisen that was soon to inherit the land first promised to them when stellar anointings of Abraham many centuries earlier. Thus, despite the setbacks, the rebellions, the murmuring, the lack of faith in his people, God was going to fulfill his word. He was just going to do it with another generation, that's all. When God says he's going to do something, are his promises absolute and unconditional certainties, or are some of God's promises conditional upon us? Some of them are conditional. Can you think of some promises that God makes that actually are conditional upon what we do? Yes. Well, Nineveh. Nineveh. He said he was going to go destroy Nineveh, and then the people repented, and he didn't. Okay, great. Other examples. Eternal salvation. Ah, eternal salvation. We have to do something. We don't work for it. We have to accept it. See, the promise of God providing a Savior to redeem earth was not conditional on us, was it? The promise of our individual salvation, though, that is up to us. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's an important one. How about the promise, given what we're talking about today in Numbers, the promises made to the descendants of Abraham? He made promises to them. Were those promises unconditional promises, regardless of how they behaved, what they did, how they acted, or were they conditional upon their accepting and cooperating with him for the fulfillment of those promises? Do you know most Christians don't believe that? Most Christians believe that the promises to the Jewish people, genetic descendants, were unconditional, and that's why we have a nation of Israel in, in Palestine today. And that one of these days, very soon, the church is going to be secretly raptured off the earth. And then the promises to Israel will be fulfilled as they rebuild their Jewish temple. And they become God's representative on earth to witness and evangelize the world during a time of tribulation. That's what most of the Christian world believes. I think it's important that we actually think through and under, at least understand their beliefs. Do you have anything you, you, you would disagree with in that belief? Why is that belief a problem? First off, it makes God out to be very arbitrary. Genetic inheritance is what he makes his decisions upon? Is that consistent with what Paul says in Scripture? No. How about what Jesus said to the Jews themselves? Whose, whose children were they? They claimed descendancy from Abraham. Abraham is our father, they said to Jesus. We are genetic descendants. We have rights. We have promises from God. And you can't do anything about it because we're genetic descendants of Abraham. And what did Jesus say? Father's the devil. You are of your father, the devil. If you were Abraham's descendants, you would love me. You're not Abraham's descendants. Yes? That's, that's no different than the, uh, the concept of once saved, always saved. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a, an interesting point. Yeah, I think there's a connection in that type of thinking that once we have a, a certain experience that God is now uh, bound to behave in certain ways regardless of what we do. Now, God will always be loving. God will always be consistent with his character. As Paul says, God will always be faithful. But that doesn't mean he actually can save a person who doesn't want to be saved. Some people have a hard time with that. I've been having a dialogue on our blog. For those who, who follow, not our blog, on our website, we have a discussion forum. Somebody has put up the question of universalism. And they uh, see God as so loving that in the end, he will eventually heal everyone, including Satan and the fallen angels, and all will be saved in the end. I think it's a, it's a wishful and hopeful idea. I think it comes from a heart who doesn't want to see anyone suffer and be lost. I, I don't, I don't uh, uh, argue with the motive. I think we all share that motive. We'd love to see that if that were possible. But there are major problems with it. First off, Scripture doesn't support it. Secondly, though, if it were true, if it were true, no matter what happens, no matter what you do, that you could be saved in the end, think it through the meaning. Hey, young people, when I'm talking over at College Academy, it doesn't matter. Go out. Do drugs. Get drunk. Rape. Pillage. Steal. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because there are no eternal consequences. In the end, God's going to save you anyway. How do you like that lesson? You want to teach your kids that? That's ultimately what universalism would say. There's no eternal consequences over the choices you make. But there are. We can so destroy ourselves that, that we actually damage the very faculties that recognize and respond to truth and we can't be reached. Mentions Jesus would save, or God would save everyone, no matter if they wanted to be saved or not. Um, I'm sure everybody's heard this reasoning before, but if if somebody chooses not to be saved and God saves them anyway, they're not going to be happy in heaven, spending eternity with a God that they don't love and with a God that they don't respect and want to be with. And so ultimately, it is an act of love, even. Even not saving us, it is an act of love because God is respecting our choices. And even though it hurts Him, He loves us enough to let us choose. Well said. Well said. Uh, just as uh, passing aside, as we're moving our way through the the the, uh, the quarterly this week in uh, Numbers, as they're as they're tra- as they're transitioning from Moses to Joshua's leadership in the in the first chapter of Joshua, as Joshua is being coronated to be the new leader of these people, um, the people answer Joshua and say, "Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as fully as as we obeyed Moses, so will we obey you." boy does that encourage your heart (laughs) if you're Joshua you're going to go please not that (laughs) Tuesday's lesson asks us to look at numbers 28 1 through 8 Uh, or actually Tuesday's lesson Um, if I can get my Oh, the second paragraph, it says Numbers 28, 1 through 8 describes the daily or continual offering of the lamb in the morning and one in the evening. It was arranged in such a manner that the sacrifice was always burning. This daily or continual was the sanctuary centerpiece. It took priority over all other sacrifices and was central to Israel's worship. This sacrifice represented the constant availability of God's forgiveness and acceptance through the Redeemer, Redeemer prefigured in the sacrifice. So we think about the daily. What do you, and, and, and what it represents. The lesson gave us a, a, a clue. How do you understand the daily and what it represents? To reflect on Christ's sacrifice daily. To reflect on Christ's sacrifice daily? Yes. As Paul says, to die daily. To die daily. Oh, I like this. This is good. Uh, if, as we think about that, keep the daily in mind. Let's look at Daniel eight eleven through 14. Remember, we're asking about the daily. What does it mean? What does it represent? 
And it talks about the little horn, and it says it set itself up against, uh, it set itself up to be as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of the sanctuary is brought low. Because of the rebellion, the host, and the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, and the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and of the hosts that were trampled underfoot. And he said to me, 2,300 days, and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Did you know that the daily sacrifice is connected to this whole 2,300-day cleansing sanctuary thing? That's what it's talking about. The daily was removed. The host was, was, was thrown down. Uh, there's going to be 2,300 days before there's a cleansing or restoration. What, what is all this talking about? Yes? Did Daniel understand that fully? Did he know that it was going to be 2,300 years? Well, you know, in the book of Daniel... He does say that the, at the end of the chapter, chapter 11, 12, somewhere in there, that the book is going to be sealed for the time of the end, and that you're going to rest in the grave until the time of the end. So Daniel had some clue, because he asked for understanding, and he was told this is going to be sealed for the time of the end. So I think he had some understanding. It wasn't going to happen in his lifetime, because he was going to rest in the grave. So I don't know if he understood the exact meaning, but I think he understood this was not going to be in his lifetime. Other questions or thoughts? What do you think this means? What is the sanctuary? You have to start with the first question. What is the sanctuary? God's temple. God's temple, which is the earth, right? No. No, that was the Millerite mistake. It's not the earth. And he didn't come in 1844, 2300 years later. So it must be a building in heaven. No, it's us. Our hearts and minds. Interesting. What do you think about that? Anybody... Got questions about that? Is your computer starting to generate Bible verses that would enlighten us on this? Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that the end will not come until the man of sin arises. That man of perdition, which is the same as a little horn, right? And he's going to set himself up against God, and he's going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, which temple was this? Did this little horn go up into heaven, kick Jesus and the Father off their throne in heaven, and proclaim himself God up there? This wasn't the heaven of the temple. Some building up, up, up there where we can't get to. He set himself up here. Don't you know that ye yourselves are, are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Or as Peter says, we are living stones built into a house for God. So how did this little horn, this, this man of sin, defile the temple, do away with the daily, set himself up in God's temple? What does it mean? What does the daily represent? The constant workings of the Godhead in our hearts and minds to heal and restore us. Day in, day out. Every day they're working. What would take away that would be false constructs of God. Belief systems that make God out to be arbitrary, severe, unforgiving. A God that requires appeasement, exactions. A God you cannot trust. A God that incites fear, puts a barrier in your mind, and ultimately dethrones the God of heaven from your sanctuary. And thus, as Revelation says... We become a sanctuary of Satan. Yes. So what did the daily represent in Daniel 8? The daily represents in Daniel 8 the constant day-to-day working of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to apply all that Christ achieves in the hearts and minds of their people. The truth about God. Jesus said, if you, unless you drink my flesh, excuse me, drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. 
What metaphor is he pulling from? The Old Testament sanctuary service, where the priests would actually eat the flesh of the sacrificial animal. And the blood was taken and spread around the sanctuary. But he's telling us that in the actual literal application, it's not a building that gets the blood applied to it. That we have to take into our hearts and minds his flesh and his blood. What does his flesh and blood represent? It's all symbolic. The life is in the blood. We have to take into us the life of Christ. Unless uh, it's no longer I, believe, I live, that Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. Uh, says in Romans 5, 5, that he pours his love into our hearts and God is love. So his, he pours himself into our hearts. We actually become a dwelling place where God lives by his spirit. That is what's being taught. What obstructs that from happening? What prevents us from the spirit living in us? All the distractions are lies that keep us obstructed from God, keeps our heart closed to him. And so the cleansing of the sanctuary, why would it take 2,300 years? Why would it take 2,300 years to cleanse the sanctuary? Because it was going to take that long for all of this lying that's been going on to be revealed as lies. And for truth, we made known little by little as we're able to receive it. See, God is talking to, to um, Daniel in, what, the 5th century B.C., somewhere around there? And he's looking down the corridors of time, and he says, here's what's going to happen. This portion of the prophecy is going to result 490 years with the Messiah coming to achieve his mission, to accomplish the overthrow of the, of the prince of this, of this earth and the, uh, the remedy for, and the cure for, for sin. When that happens, though, there's going to be a counterattack. Satan is going to counter all that the Messiah is going to do, and he's going to twist it. He's going to misrepresent it. He's going to turn it so that it actually becomes something that obstructs the mind the way, way it's taught rather than something that heals the mind. And it's going to be 2,300 years from now before the counterattack is countered with enough truth that sets minds free. And thus you read in Daniel chapter 8, I think, or 9, further on, where it says that the little horn waged war and succeeded against them until a certain time happened. Until the Ancient of Days did something. Rendered judgment. Well, in the NIV it says until the Ancient of Days um, pronounced judgment in favor of the saints. Bad translation. The, King James says, until the Ancient of Days gave judgment to the saints. Oh. In other words, until we had enough discernment and judgment to figure out that the beast system was lying. Until the Ancient of Days provided enough truth that he gave us discernment, gave us wisdom, gave us judgment that we could reject the lies and embrace the truth. Spiritual maturity, Hebrews 5. These are the, uh, the, the mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. It was going to be that long until enough truth was recovered. And when did it start? The Reformation, when the Bible got translated in the language of the people. Light could start shining through. And then you see this gradual progression of truth coming in, coming in, coming in. And we keep embracing more truth, learning more about God that frees our hearts and minds, ultimately resulting in that group sealed who can be those witnesses to, to the whole world. What well, do you guys think about that? Oh, by the way, what is Satan's goal for humanity? Anybody know what Satan's goal is? Not quite exactly. I mean, ultimately, it results in that, but he doesn't want that. He would rather have his ability to live for eternity uh, and not die, and humanity not die, too. Because he has another goal for humanity. This is what it says. He wants worship. He wants our worship. Yeah, she wants our worship. He wants our adoration. You see, uh, a, a, a power monger by himself on a desert island is miserable. Okay, so Bible, six Bible commentary, page eleven nineteen. It says, "This is this is from Ellen White." She says, 
Satan's aim has been to reproduce his own character in human beings. No sooner was man created than Satan resolved to efface in him the image of God and to place his stamp where God's should be. What is Satan's goal? To kill us and destroy us ultimately? Or to make us look like him? It's the ultimate compliment. Yeah, it's the ultimate compliment. See, it's exactly right. So it's that imitation is... It's the serious form of flattery. He wants us to look like Satan. That's his goal. And, what, and that's the same thing as defiling the sanctuary, because we are the temple where God should be. Same thing as the man of sin setting himself up in God's sanctuary, proclaiming himself to be God. It's all the same. What is God's goal for us? This is out of uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 27. If you haven't marked this in your Bible, it's a great one to mark. This is, therefore... Say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. And what, how do you think we profane God's name? Do you think we can do it or just the people of Old Testament times? How do we profane God's name? Simply by bad words that use his name in the, in the words? By taking his name as a Christian and not acting like Oh, beautifully said. By calling ourselves Christian and acting like Satan. When I was in, uh, in residency in, uh, in Augusta, in my uh, residency program down there, there were only four psychiatrists in Augusta who advertised in the newspaper and the uh, phone book as Christian psychiatrists. One of them was being investigated for sex with his patient. One of them for um, child molestation. One of them for um, Medicare fraud. And another one for some other type of insurance fraud. Okay? They were the only four who actually put Christian in front of their name as they advertised. Now, you all know I'm a Christian psychiatrist. I've never advertised Christian psychiatrist. That kind of turned me off to that whole idea, I've got to tell you. <laughs> I think, you know, people will know and tell people, hey, he's a Christian psychiatrist. I shouldn't have to put it out there and advertise. And, and people who often live a legalistic life, do illegal things like this, will need some way to defend the guilt so they promote themselves as Christian and they'll wear crosses around their neck and do all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that everybody who wears a cross around their neck has, has got this kind of problem. I'm just saying people will do that to make an external show, just like the Pharisees in Christ's day make an external show because the heart is not pure. So anyway, uh, we profane the name by doing what you said, right there, taking them Christian and then misrepresenting him. Then it says, then the nations will know that I am Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and, you, and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You hear what's happening here? Satan's goal is to make us selfish. To make us narcissistic. To make us exploit other people. To make us power mongers. To make us hard hearted. That's Satan's goal. To make us look like him. God is saying, hey, I'm going to take you broken and hurt people. And if you trust me, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to take that hard, stony heart out. I'm going to give you a tender heart. A heart that loves me and loves people. A heart of compassion. A heart that loves truth. A heart that will represent me and my name will be honored as people see your love for me and your love for others. 
just like a doctor who takes a patient who's sick and dying in terminal cancer and gives them a remedy that cures them. The patient gets no credit. No glory goes to the patient. The doctor who came up with the remedy gets the glory. God gets the glory for our wellness. We get the privilege of being healed. Tim, I am so thankful that God honors and strives for continued individuality. And Satan just wants to group us. Yes. Not only in his image, but to have us all think the same. God wants us to love him and be in his image, but he wants us to continue to come and reason, to question forever. Beautifully. And of course, this ties right into Revelation 14.7, a great Adventist passage. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. How do we give glory to God? She said obedience. The Ezekiel text tells us, my name will be honored. I am glorified when you reveal me in your life. When you have allowed me to heal you and you love me and you love others more than yourself. I will be glorified when people see Christ in you. I am glorified. That's how we glorify him. Because the hour of his judgment has come. The hour that people are deciding, is that a God I can trust or is that a God I can't trust? And we are there to show, yes, this is a God who will take you no matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how guilty you are, no matter how miserable you are, if you trust him, he will heal you. He will restore you. Look at where my life was. Look at what he's done for me. Wednesday's lesson about vows and oaths. Vows and oaths. Why is it important to keep our word? Why is it important to keep our word? As you think this through, as parents tell their first grade kid, if you get 100% on your spelling bee, I'll give you 10 bucks. Kid studies real hard, comes home with 100%. Parent does not give the 10 bucks. What does the parent just teach the child? That the child cannot trust the parent. The parent doesn't do what they say. Easy, obvious to see. Parent says to the kid, if you don't pick up your toys before dinner, you can't have dessert with the rest of the family after dinner. Dinner time comes, everybody's sitting around the table, toys are still all over the floor. Go to serve dinner to the re- uh, dessert to the rest of the family. Kid begins to cry and whine. Oh, I want some dessert. And the parent says, okay, I'll let you have it this time, but next time pick up your toys. What did the parent just teach the child? That the parent cannot be trusted. That the parent does not keep their word. Same, same lesson. Now what happens? What's the problem with that? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid. They were afraid because they believed a lie that God could not be trusted. And when they believed the lie that God could not be trusted, the instant response is insecurity, fear, anxiety, and running to watch out for yourself. When children grow up in homes where there's not consistency in parents keeping their word, they have increasing fear, increasing anxiety, and they act out and rebel, as Adam and Eve did, looking for something stable they can trust or looking to protect themselves because they don't feel safe. This is why it is hugely important in parenting that we keep our word. And I tell parents, never set a boundary with your child you're not willing to enforce. If you don't enforce it, it will incite further rebellion because it will incite sort of more fear and anxiety in the child. Now, going on with oaths and promises about uh, in here. The, the first paragraph says, and is there any questions about that? First paragraph says on oaths and promises, um, it's one thing to flat out lie. Obviously that's sinful and wrong. And it says that's not what's being talked about here. It's talking about keeping your word and so forth and keeping a promise. A question, is it always sinful and wrong to flat out lie? No. 
I mean, the, the lesson makes it declarative. It is always sinful and wrong. Is it? What about Rahab? Anybody know the story of Rahab? She hid the spies. They came looking, knocked on the door. Did she flat out lie or just lie? <laughs> she flat out lied. Now, where do we find her in the rest of Scripture? The royal line of the, of the Messiah. She is one of the progenitors of Christ, if you look in the line. She's a, a progenitor of David, King David. So she's in the royal line, and she's also in the hall of faith. Did you know that Rahab lied by faith? It's true. There's no question about it. To understand what happened here. Rahab, what does she know about God? And the true God. She's a citizen of Jericho. She's not had a missionary come and really give her a good Bible study yet. But she's heard the stories coming out of Egypt. She's had the spies come. She's had the Holy Spirit enlighten her mind enough to convict her that this God is the true God and the pagan things she's worshiping, they ain't it. And so she says, hey, I'm on his side. That's about as much as she knows. So I'm on his side. If you're on his side, do you start acting like you're on his side? Do you start making choices to be on his side? And so what does she do? I'm going to hide his, his representatives. I'm going to protect them. And she protects them the best way she knows how. She lies. Now, you don't find a Bible text where God says, Well, lied, Rahab. <laughs> but you do find God recognizing her act of faith, putting her life at risk for these people and for him. So the way I analogy, the analogy I use is you're a parent, you're out working in your garden, and you're weeding your tomato plants, and you have a two-year-old toddler that comes up behind you and pulls up a tomato plant and with a big smile says, Help mommy, help daddy. Now, what's the heart of the child? Is the heart pure, right? How's their performance? It's not very good. Do you then beat the child and punish the child? Absolutely not. This is Rahab, okay? God isn't saying, love to pull up those tomato plants, great job. He's saying, I love your heart, you're on my side. And many times we miss that. And we focus on the behavior of somebody who still hasn't even had time to grow up yet, instead of the heart that is on God's side doing the best they know how. Yes? It talks in, I think, in John, uh, in First John, about sin that doesn't lead unto death. So maybe that was one of those sins that didn't, didn't lead to death. That'll have to be a good, that, that, I like that. Um, do circumstances matter? Well, this is from Ellen White. I like this quote. Um, this is what she says, and this is out of 5 bio, page 315. And it says, um, My mind has been greatly stirred in regard to the idea, and then the idea is about to come. But notice, I'm greatly stirred up about this. What's she greatly stirred up about? Quote, Why, Sister White has said so-and-so, and Sister White has said so-and-so, and therefore we're going to go right up and do it. Unquote. And then she keeps on. She keeps on her words. God wants us to have common sense. And he wants us to reason from common sense. Circumstances alter conditions. Circumstances change the relation of things. How do you like that? Isn't that beautiful? How many of you have ever had the old other approach? Sister White says so-and-so. Apply it across the board. All circumstances look like The Bible says so-and-so. Circumstances don't matter. Do circumstances matter? Well, let's give some other examples. In the lesson, it talks that we should keep every vow because we're Christians and if we break a vow, it misrepresents Christ. Should we keep every vow? Are there vows that should be broken? 
Ellen White says in the last paragraph, the obligation to which one's word is pledged, if it does not bind him to perform a wrong act, should be held sacred. Does she just put a condition on there? Yes. Yeah, it shouldn't be. If it's going to require you to do a wrong act, then you should break your vow. That's what she's saying. That's one condition. What about, let's give some examples. I had a patient who came to see me who was distraught, very distraught and depressed because she had given a promise to her mother many years before that she would never put her mother in a nursing home. Five years before seeing me, her mother got diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia. And over the last five years, it progressively got worse and worse and worse. And at the time she came to see me, for the last six, eight months, her mother didn't know who she was, where she was, what time it was. She would uh, not sleep through the 24-hour cycle, up at night, wandering, see people who weren't there, become agitated, aggressive, um, very, very different. And this was an only child who had no support systems and was not very wealthy. She was exhausting herself trying to care for this mother because she wanted to keep her promise. One night, she was, uh, actually it was an afternoon, she was so exhausted, she just fell asleep on the couch. Mother wandered out of the home, uh, wandered over some neighbor's house, was banging on their door, screaming incoherently. The police were called, and she was taken away. Well, should this woman continue to try to keep the promise of not putting her in a nursing home or some care facility? No. You see, she was under this approach. Well, I gave my word. I gave a promise. I can't break it. Well, what was the heart of the promise, though? What was the actual heart intent I will do what's best for you. Wasn't that the, the real intent of the promise? And at this point in time, what was best for mom? That she be given care from others who could provide better care than this daughter could continue to provide for her. What about marriage vow? Should we keep that one? I'll tell you a true story. A Christian school teacher went to her pastor because her husband was beating her on a fairly regular basis. She made the ER for broken ribs and black eye and bloody lip on several occasions. And, the, and her husband was the deacon in the church. And he was beating her regularly. The pastor counseled with his husband on multiple occasions, but the beatings never stopped. Should she stay? Oh, and there was no evidence by anybody that he'd had sexual relations with anybody else. Should she stay? Is that vow an unconditional vow? When you take your marriage vows, I love, honor, and cherish till death do you part. Aren't there implicit in that vow certain circumstances that will cause you to break that vow? Like if your spouse is molesting your kids? Well, he broke it. He does, he's not loving and cherishing. Oh, he's not loving and cherishing. I love that. See, that's my view of it, too. I, I just added in there because some take the approach that unless there's not sexual contact involved with another person, then the vow hasn't been broken. I agree with you. He broke the vow first. Because he didn't love, honor, and cherish. Because when we, when we marry somebody and we commit ourselves to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part, we commit more than our genitals to one another. We commit our hearts to one another. And so you can violate the marriage vow by breaking and breaches of heart trust. And that's what Christ is talking about in Matthew 5. When you look at another woman with lust in your heart, when you've betrayed your heart commitment to another, you've broken your marriage vow. He did. He loved himself more. How about this one? about lying. We're asking the question of lying here on this one. I knew someone who as a child had a pet dog. And that pet dog was mostly kept outside and would yap and make a lot of noise. And, and it was yapping, 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 making noise one night and the father got up in the middle of the night went out with a thirty-eight pistol and shot and killed the dog. When the child got up the next morning the parents told the child that the dad gave the dog away. Flat out lie. Should they have told the child the truth? No. 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 no, there was just, just a, it was just yappy dog. 
Both of them will damage the child. Hmm. What do you think? Well, I'll leave that for you to decide. <laughs> well, I want to know as a psychologist, what would... Because I, I want to know, I mean, what, what should he done? Are there any psych- psychologists in the room? I think the appropriate action would be to do what's healthy and not harmful to the child. Which is not to shoot the dog to begin with. Not to shoot the dog to begin with. Dad wasn't a Christian, mom was. And so I'll tell you, my dad wasn't a Christian, mom was. So mom made dad tell the kid that the dog was given away. (laughs) Is that better? We all feel more comfortable now? (laughs) We'll get the Gentiles to carry our laundry on Sabbath. When Peter promised and gave a vow to Jesus, if everyone else betrays you, I won't. Was Peter lying? No, he Was he telling the truth? Yes. Did he keep his promise? No. What was the What was the issue here? And this goes This goes to many relationships today, and I point this out to people all the time. Did Peter love Jesus? Yes. Yes, he did, and he meant his word. But the problem, he still loved himself more. And so when the push came to shove, he protected self and betrayed Christ. And that's why Jesus said to him before his betrayal, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Peter is not yet converted. After his denial, he went out, wept bitterly, and then died to self and came to love Christ more. This is hugely important if you ever do any marriage counseling. Because in marriage relationships, you will find this all the time. A person will love their spouse, but they will still love themselves more. And so when certain circumstances push come to shove, they will constantly betray their spouse to protect themselves. And these relationships are very difficult. And, and ultimately, the one spouse who is on the end that Christ was on um, will come to not trust the spouse who continues to proclaim their loyalty and love and devotion. They won't trust them. Because you know that, yes, you love me, but you still love yourself more. I can't trust you. And that's why Christ didn't trust Peter. Yes, yes. The problem sometimes is the limits of our understanding. This is Peter who never foresee a, a possible uh, situation where he would betray Christ. And I would suggest to you it wasn't the situation he didn't foresee. He didn't understand what I just said, that he did love Christ, but he still loved himself more. He didn't understand that. Right, so the limits of our understanding. Yeah, about ourselves, not about necessarily some future event. Not, not events, but... Yeah. But pick your own heart. What does it say in Jeremiah? The human heart is deceitful above all things, and utterly wicked who can know it. So I agree with you. We don't understand, we don't know, but it's primarily about our own selves. And what's the greatest battle each of us have to fight? Self-self. Battle with self, yes. That's why uh, Christ allows us to go through certain circumstances so that we can understand ourselves and to allow to give that up, to allow him to have control of it. I mean, have control of the, the process that we go through of learning more about him. Thoughts or questions about this vows, lies, keeping your word? Yes. I have the opinion that if we decide to break a truth, lie, or whatever you want to call it, uh, for an end that we foresee, that is ultimately much more self-serving, ultra-centered. I see that principle of truth as being probably the most convincing universal that we need to hold absolute. Uh, and was, Rahab, was Rahab self-serving? 
she protecting those spies? Well, I, at the risk of her own life. I see her act as a as an act of faith, like you pointed out. But to say that uh, the Bible condones her lie in any way, shape, or form is an argument from silence. No, I, I would agree with you. I think truth is, 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 the, is the ultimate. God is truth, God is love, and we, as we come to know him, will be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and stand for truth, even if it means our life is on the line. I agree with you completely. Uh, but circumstances do matter. It depends on where a person is in their spiritual journey, as Rahab was. And, we, and what, I'm, what I was trying to resist is the idea that we, who maybe are spiritually mature, should look with condemnation on maybe somebody like Rahab and say, oh, she didn't tell the truth. Uh, she's, she's spiritually immature. She's spiritually somebody we should look down upon, we should criticize. And, and, and I'm just trying to suggest that, that we would not want to take that very legalistic, cookie-cutter approach and apply to all circumstances and all people that we need to let every person be fully persuaded in their mind and, and encourage people to come to the love for the truth that we want to be sacrosanct. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. So I didn't want anybody to walk out of here thinking that was blurring the margins on whether we should be truthful or not. Not at all. I'm not suggesting that. Our hearts, as we come closer to Christ, we become lovers of the truth. Jesus said in John 8.32 that the truth heals and the truth sets free. We can't be healed and set free if we, if we are lovers of deception. There's no question about it. But in that journey from darkness to light, sometimes people like Rahab are moving in the direction of light, yet still maybe doing some things like telling a lie in that process because they haven't been matured or, or seen a better way yet. Yes? Um, just kind of to emphasize that on... Rahab's act was an act of faith, but like you guys are saying, it was an act of ignorant faith. And if we ever, aside that, I just feel like that's been kind of happening in my head over the last couple of years. There's so many people in this world that I admire, um, you know, like Martin Luther King and different people that have done great things. And I just, I keep hearing about all these terrible things that they do on the side. And I'm just realizing more and more, if we ever use a person to justify our actions, then we'll end up wrong anyway. So we can't we can't look to Rahab and say, oh, she lied, so therefore it's okay for her to lie. We can't judge Rahab for lying, but if we ever look to somebody else, no matter how spiritual they are, or how spiritual they seem, if we look to anybody but Christ to justify our actions, then we'll end up at fault. I like it. I like it a lot. And, and as we take that in, uh, as our closing thought, as we look back at Rahab, let's look past Rahab and look at how God treated Rahab. How did God treat Rahab in her behavior there? He healed her. He healed her. He saved her and made her part of the, of the bloodline of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Because of her act of faith. So I think that's right. We look to God who isn't primarily concerned about a particular behavior. He's primarily concerned about the heart and whether it's open to him to be transformed and regenerated. And I believe that Rahab, as she grows, becomes like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and would stand for truth and, and, not, and give her life rather than, 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 than compromise her principles as the Holy Spirit has time to change her. Yeah. Closing comment. Yes. Jesus used an angel to uh, shut the guards my eyes as he took Peter the, the, out of prison and, and maybe this was God's angel to put, come between to save the, I mean, to save the uh, spies I think we'll reflect on that all week that's an interesting thought God did send his angels to uh, to uh, blind the eyes or, or the, of the guards and stuff so they could walk right out of prison and open the, the, the doors uh, how does that connect to what uh, I think the principle you're saying is God will also use people to be his agents in his behalf if we allow uh, him to work through us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that 
you have sent Christ to bring us the truth. And as we study about your workings with people in the Old Testament, you gave us this incredible object lesson. Let the Holy Spirit enlighten our minds. Let us draw the lessons that we can apply to our lives today. Settle us, both intellectually and spiritually, into your truth, that we can be that group of people on earth that will be your witnesses to lighten the world for your coming, that we can see you in the clouds soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.